Good morning, everybody. So, uh, as Keith said earlier, we are finally finishing up in Galatians today. Um, If you were here the last two weeks, you know we took a break, um, but hopefully you remember that we weren't quite done. We had one chapter left. So, uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can start making your way to Galatians chapter 6. Before I get into the message... I just want to reiterate one of those announcements from earlier, uh, the one about the prayer and worship night that's going to be happening uh, Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, just two days away, 7.30 downstairs. Um, I wanted to say about that, let's say you're a student and uh, you've got a lot of homework to do on Tuesday night, but you would like to do it in a worshipful atmosphere. Uh, You can just come into our cafe, Find a a table and a chair, and you can even do your homework uh, while the worship music surrounds you. So this is a very relaxed and formal time to come. You can sing along, but you can also just pray. You can reflect and contemplate, or you can do your homework. I don't care. Um, You're just welcome to come. And uh, just like at service, we do ask you to wear a mask. Um, Know that those of us who are singing, there will be two of us who are singing, we, we won't be masked. Um, just don't want any, any surprises there, just so you know what it's going to be like. And um, so, please consider uh, coming for that. All right. Um, so, chapter 6, we're going to read the whole thing, um, but we're going to focus on the first half. The second half, Paul reiterates a lot of things that he's already said throughout the letter. And it's good to read it and be reminded of what he said. Uh, But we're really going to focus on the first half, where Paul gives what I like to call concluding commands, some final instructions. And these instructions are really all about how to have a healthy church community. And I think the instructions he gives are just as relevant for us today as they were back in the first century. Uh, So before we get into this, let's say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, A beautiful morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather around your name, around your table, and around your word. And uh, Lord, we just invite you to work in us today. Uh, Teach us, Lord. We want to hear from you. Help us to attend uh, to you and to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, 
especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers and sisters, amen. If there's one thing that I hope has been clear throughout this entire series, it's that the Galatian church was a mess, right? It was a disaster. Um, false teaching was rampant, right? Uh, Paul goes so far as to say that they have abandoned the essence of the gospel message. And the basic command of love your neighbor as yourself was being woefully neglected. Paul says that uh, instead of loving one another, he describes them as biting and devouring each other. So the, the Galatian church was riddled with pride and envy and jealousy and selfish ambition and all of the resulting factions and, and divisions. And yet, this is what I want us to notice, Paul still considered the Galatian church something worth fighting for. Something worth reforming, right? Now his letter is certainly critical. He expresses shock and disappointment over the direction that the church has gone in. But, you know, he never says, oh, this, this church thing, it's just such a waste of time. Right? I, I think we need to give up on this whole idea of gathering around the word and, and, and the Lord's table. Just disband and do your own thing. It's just not working. Right? Paul never says that. The New Testament consistently models three realities about the church. One is that the church is never perfect. Two is that the church can become very unhealthy sometimes. And three, the church is worth fighting for. If those three things were not true, then most of the New Testament never would have been written. Right? Because the New Testament was written to messed up churches to try to help them become less messed up. Right? And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because we live in a time where a lot of people, especially in America, according to the data, uh, a lot of people are, are giving up on church. Now, I want to be clear, I think a lot of the reasons that people say they're giving up on church are important reasons. And those of us who still identify with the church need to be willing to hear those critiques. We need to be willing to listen rather than just dismiss. And, and we need to take what's said and ask ourselves, how can we do better? So it's important to listen, not, not just dismiss. 
But before we get too discouraged or decide to just, you know, jump ship along with them, we need to remind ourselves of what the New Testament consistently models over and over again, which is that being the church and doing it well is hard. The church has always had to struggle to be what it is meant to be. It has never been easy, and it never will be easy until Christ returns. That's just the way it is. But it's worth fighting for. And what I mean by that is it's worth being a part of and worth working to make it closer to God's will and to God's ideal. Now, in the passage that we just read, Paul gave some commands to help the Galatian church get closer to God's ideal. And we're going to spend the rest of this morning looking more closely at those commands. And what I've done is I've broken them up into four, four things that people of the church should be doing. Of course, it should go without saying, these are not the only things that people of the church should be doing. But these are some key ingredients to having a healthy community, according to Paul. So, number one, people of the church should correct gently. Correct gently. Remember verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now, when we hear that word caught, I want us to be careful because I don't want us to get the wrong idea. It sounds, you, well, I don't know how you take it, but I could imagine some people hearing this and they might think it sounds like Paul is saying that we're supposed to be policing each other all the time to see if we can catch each other in a sin, right? And if we catch each other doing something that's a little off, we're immediately supposed to say, oh, no, 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 and get someone back in line, right? And we're always supposed to be on the prowl policing one another. But when you hear caught in a sin, don't think about you catching somebody else. Think about sin catching someone. Um, an, uh, an image that might be helpful. When you hear that word caught, you know, think of one of those bear traps. You know a bear trap? And imagine that what Paul is talking about is that when somebody gets ensnared in sin, you know, in a, in a pattern of envy or pride or anger, People in the church have a responsibility to gently restore that person, to, to correct them. So, again, don't think Paul is saying we're all supposed to be watching each other, side-eye, figuring out, oh, are they doing the right thing or not. When a pattern is revealed, a pattern of being ensnared, caught, trapped in sin, that's when something needs to be, to be done. Now, if I had to guess, I would suspect that a lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea that Paul would command us within the church to correct each other. And I can think of three reasons why. First one is the most obvious one, because some of us just don't want to be corrected ever, right? We want, we want to think that everything is just fine with us, just as we are. Thank you very much. And so the idea that a church environment could be a place that we would come to and have anybody tell us that we should change anything about the way we are is upsetting to us. But it's not a good attitude to have, right? Because unless we are open to correction, it's going to be very hard for us to grow. 
Proverbs 12.1 puts it very bluntly. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. (laughs) The word of God. We all need correction sometimes. And sometimes we can't really see ourselves until we have somebody else functioning like a mirror for us, right? You can't you can't see what you look what you look like unless you look into a mirror, right? And similarly, we need other people to reflect back to us what we're like. Which means we need to be open to correction. Now, a second reason um, that the command to correct might make us uncomfortable is that a lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea of correcting anyone else. Now, of course, there are some people who are all too eager to tell other people what they're doing wrong. That's a problem. But I think there's probably just as many people who are uncomfortable with telling anybody else, you know, I think think you might need to work on this. Because we all like to be liked, right? And so we're worried that if we tell somebody something they are not going to want to hear, that they might stop liking us. It's the same reason that in a group, you know, if you're with somebody and they've got something in your teeth, most people don't want to be the one to say you've got something in your teeth, right? Why is that so uncomfortable to be the one who says that? It's because we fear that in leading them to become aware of this embarrassing thing that they might not like us as much. So that's the second reason that command might make us uncomfortable. And then finally, the third reason, and I think this is the best one, is because a lot can go wrong when people correct each other. Sometimes people try to correct each other when correction isn't even necessary. And sometimes correction is necessary, but people correct in a way that does more harm than good, right? Now, Paul is so clear here that when correction is given, there are several things that are necessary in order for it to be good correction. First one is that it should be spirit-led. It should be spirit-led. What that means is that it should be the kind of correction that flows out of somebody who is living life in the spirit. You might remember that a couple weeks ago we talked about how Paul, Paul recognizes three ways that we can be going through life, three modes of consciousness, life under the law, life in the flesh, and life in the spirit. Now, life under the law is the kind of mindset where you're constantly focused on rules and do's and don'ts, and that's, that's what you're thinking about all the time. And when you're living life under the law, that frame of mind usually either leads to self-hatred, oh, what a failure I am, or to self-righteousness, what a failure all of you are. Life in the flesh is the frame of mind where we just kind of let whatever we want in the moment dictate what we do. Desire is king. That's life in the flesh. But life in the spirit is life that is led by love, by the desire to love God and love our neighbor, to bless God and bless our neighbor. So the person who offers correction should be someone who is living in the spirit, That's essential. And that means if 
if you're thinking, I, th I think I might need to say something to someone, something corrective to someone, you need to ask yourself, am I motivated by love? Is that really what's underneath my desire to correct? Can I offer this correction in a way that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or, if I'm honest with myself, am I really motivated by the flesh? Which Paul says is characterized by things like hatred, jealousy, envy, selfish, selfish ambition, fits of rage, right? If those are the kinds of motivations that are behind our desire to correct, we should probably keep our mouths shut. We should definitely keep our mouths shut. Second thing that Paul says should be true of our correction is that it should be restorative. Restorative. Notice, our, it's clear in our passage that Paul is talking about correcting someone, but the word that's used, actually, is restore. Restore. If you look up that word in the Greek, it says uh, to mend or to make things as they ought to be. So to go back to my illustration from earlier of, of, of the bear trap, sometimes what passes for correction is like somebody walking up to the person in the bear trap and just saying, you're stuck in a trap. What's wrong with you? <laughs> or even worse, you know, slapping them across the face. And how could you get stuck in this trap? Right? This trap of anger, this trap of lust, this trap of envy. I can't believe it. Why would you do this? But the kind of correction that Paul is thinking of is the kind of correction where you, you get down and you help pry open that trap and free them from the snare. In other words, it's the kind of correction that should cost you something, that should take some effort on your part because it's, it's not just an act of telling someone that they're wrong, but it's supposed to be an act of restoration. And when you're trying to help someone be restored, right, it, it, it often takes more than just words, right? It, it, it takes time. This, this person might need you to meet with them every week for months, right, to really mend and, be, and, and help help them become as they ought to be. This person might need you to pray with them regularly. They might need a referral to a, a therapist or a, um, a, a recovery program or something like that, right? So before you correct someone, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to help this person in the process of restoration, of mending, right? Or is this just about saying, oh, you're wrong about this. All right, and then thirdly, Paul emphasizes that our correction should be gentle. It should be gentle. What does that mean? It should be tactful. It should be careful. It should be given in private, you know, rather than with an audience. We shouldn't give in to snark or sarcasm, right? We should do it without any desire to wound the person that we're offering correction to. Gentle. And then finally, any correction that we offer should be humble, 
should be coming from a place of humility. You know, I appreciate how immediately after Paul gives this command to correct, he says, what? Watch yourselves. Look out. Or you may also be tempted. So what is the temptation? The, the temptation is pride. Any time that you're in a position of offering a correction to someone, there's an inherent danger in that, which is that you will think that you are superior to them, right? And that attitude is spiritually toxic. It is so dangerous. Pride is at the root of so much bad stuff in communities, right? And so it has to come from a place of humility, you know, the way Paul tells us to look out for this attitude, he says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. If you offer correction with a superiority complex, you're probably not helping the person you're talking to, and you're definitely not helping yourself. So, correct gently. All right, what else does Paul say people of the church should do? Number two, people of the church should not focus on comparison. Not focus on comparison. Remember verse four. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now, this is a little confusing because it sounds a bit like Paul is contradicting what he just said, right? Because just a little while earlier, he said, carry each other's burdens. And now he's saying that you should carry your own load. So what's the deal here? Well, this is not a contradiction because Paul is talking about two different things. Okay? When he talks about carrying each other's burdens, he's talking about helping one another to get out of those traps, those snares of sin. But when he talks about carrying our own load, he's talking about something else. He's talking about each one of us recognizing that we have a unique calling from God, a unique role to play, unique circumstances, and we are responsible before God for how we handle those unique circumstances and roles. Okay? And he's bringing this up because... You know, if we operate according to comparison, we end up doing things like saying, well, you know, I don't really have a problem with anger. And, and the way I know that is because I know Joe. And oh boy, Joe's got a problem with anger. I mean, have you, did you hear about what he did last week? That person needs to carry their own load. See, that's what Paul is talking about there. Right? Rather than focusing on other people and their problems. Now, Joe might need some correction, but that doesn't mean that the person correcting Joe or, or critiquing Joe doesn't also need to recognize that they have an issue as well. Right? And comparison shouldn't be how we, how we dictate what we need to address in our own lives. When we evaluate our lives by comparing ourselves to others, we're not focused on what God's will is for us, right? Instead, we're focused on what everybody else is doing and, and whether or not we're doing it as well as them or worse than them, whether we're doing it faster than them or slower than them. 
you know, for example, if you're thinking about getting married, you should not determine whether or not that's a good idea by asking, well, are most people my age married? What's the average? Let me Google that. Figure it out. Right? You know, as if averages indicate God's will for our lives. Each of us needs to recognize I'm a unique individual with unique circumstances. No two life stories are the same, and that's a good thing. So I have to carry my own load. And, you know, not, to, not worry too much about how that load compares to everybody else's. Any church where people get too focused on comparing themselves to one another is in trouble. It's going to have a tough time. Because that is going to be a community that both has a lot of self-righteousness and a lot of envy. It's going to have a lot of self-righteousness because there will be people who compare themselves and think that they're better than everybody else. And it's going to have a lot of envy because there will be people who compare themselves and wish that they had the circumstances that other people have and then resent them for it. So comparison just doesn't lead to anything good. So do not fall into the comparison trap. Carry your own load and then take healthy pride in doing the best that you can with the unique circumstances and abilities that God has given you. Okay? All right. What else should we be doing to be a healthy church? I'm going to go through these last two pretty quickly. Uh, number three, Paul says that uh, people of the church should support teachers. Uh, verse six says, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, I really don't want to spend time on this at all <laughs> uh, because I feel like it feels self, self-serving and awkward uh, to, to talk about it. I am only mentioning it because it's part of the passage. Uh, But Paul is recognizing that in church communities, there are certain people who are called to be teachers, instructors in the word. Obviously, Paul was one of those people. And he is recognizing a reality, which is that being a teacher takes time, takes effort. And when you spend that time and effort on learning and preparing to teach and teaching... That time and effort cannot then be used for making money in other ways, right? And so he's saying that the church community should make it a point to value their teachers and to help support them so that they can do that work. And then finally, number four, people of the church should not give up. Should not give up. Uh, Verse 9 is a favorite of mine, not just in Galatians, but in the whole Bible. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let us not become weary in doing good. It's common to become weary in doing good, isn't it? Because trying to be a church that follows Jesus, trying to do that well, it takes effort. It is not the natural state. The natural state is to slide into entropy and disorder, right? Sinning is easy. But 
being the church, helping people out of the bear traps of sin and letting other people help us out of our bear traps of sin. That takes effort. It, it's not easy and we can get discouraged. And Paul encourages us. He says, have confidence that no good thing done in Jesus' name is pointless. They're all like seeds that are being planted. And one day, we will see the harvest from those seeds. Now, I, I don't think that we're going to see the harvest completely until Jesus comes back, until the next life. I think we get glimpses of it right now. But the hope is a coming harvest in the future where every good thing that has been done in Jesus' name yields a result that we can see, that we can celebrate. And we're supposed to trust that even if right now we can't see the harvest, it's coming. So don't give up. The church is worth fighting for, even though it often disappoints, even though it often loses the plot, even though correction is needed and will always be needed for something, don't grow weary of doing good. The harvest is still coming. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be the kind of community that embodies the new creation that Paul talked about. Uh, he said, all that matters now is the new creation. Lord, through your work through Jesus, through, through your death and resurrection, a new creation has been established. And we want to uh, embody that new creation. We want to reflect it. A creation that is led by the Spirit, not by the law, not by the flesh. Father, I pray that in our church, uh, we would do that, and that we would not grow weary of working towards that, even when it's hard. And Father, we trust that as we keep doing that, uh, you will be with us, and that we will get glimpses of that harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.